At Tarrant, we organize webinars that we are pleased to share on our podcast channel and on our website www.arrent.com. The following webinar was recorded on the 14th of October and is entitled Transfer Pricing and COVID-19. Should transfer prices be changed? Our experts, Danny Beaton of Cancel and Alexandra Garcia-Ruiz de Leon, associate at Arendt and Melona, guided the audience through policy and documentation lessons from the courts for winning and avoiding dispute. Hello and a very warm welcome to Arendt and Medinac. My name is Brian Gribben and I'm the Business Development Director here at Arendt and the moderator for today's webinar. I'm delighted that so many of you have been able to join us today where the discussion will focus on transfer pricing and whether transfer prices should be changed in the light of the current COVID crisis. Now, as a law firm, as well as a tax advisor, we've been tracking the recent transfer pricing cases in the courtrooms to see what conclusions we can draw. This makes it much less theoretical by talking about real cases, so hopefully it'll be very useful for everyone. I'm joined today by two transfer pricing experts, Danny and Alejandra, who are both members of our tax practice, and will take us through examples from the courts for winning and, of course, avoiding disputes. So just one quick note on housekeeping. Please do feel free to ask questions as we go through, and we will answer as many as we can. We also have some time at the end for Q&A, and we will post a replay of this webinar at arendt.com. And each of the attendees who joined us today will also receive uh, via email a copy of the slides. So you can, of course, continue to ask questions after the webinar, and we'll show the speaker's contact details at the end. So now I'd like to pass over to Danny to open the session. Thank you, Brian. So um, what we thought would be helpful today uh, is that we reviewed um, recent transfer pricing cases to see if they seemed to bear on the key questions that are coming up in transfer pricing and the situation of the coronavirus and the economic problems that have resulted. And we found, um, in fact, 14 recent cases which seem to bear on those issues. And we're going to um, put them up on the screen briefly with the full references so you can look them up. And as we go through, we'll note uh, which cases related to the issues that we're talking about. Uh, we're going to start um, by um, a quick recap on how we got to this situation. Um, and then uh, we're also going to summarize the OECD guidance such as it is that's relevant. Clearly, it's being added to by a new project um, over the next few months by the OECD, which we'll talk about a little. Then we're going to get into the meat of the, of the webinar, which is the challenges made by the tax administrations, successful or not, because it's worth knowing how outrageous some of them can be and be ready for them. And that's more, of more use, which arguments have succeeded for taxpayers in the context of each challenge, which we hope will be useful. 
and also what are the implications for contemporaneous transfer pricing documentation. That is what you write down now to explain your, active, your actions or lack of actions in response to the crisis based on what has been very useful to have in court. I know about half of you are listening particularly to hear the Luxembourg impact of this, which we shall address separately. We'll take a few questions as we go along and at the end. Uh, let's move on to the next slide. So the context, of course, is that we have a situation of government restrictions, obligations, and subsidies, and less demand for some products and routes to market and more for others, such as internet sales and home delivery. Um, now, if market prices and margins are changing, this should normally lead to transfer pricing changes. Um, although, of course, we have the problem of um, the relevance of, of benchmarks from, from last year in this situation. Um, the speed and nature of the response, and indeed, if there should be any response, it will be limited by the terms and conditions of existing agreements uh, and their possible termination clauses. Um, how arrangements uh, are changing with third parties and between third parties, if at all, and the specific business interests of the related parties in question, including the um, options realistically available and their longer-term considerations and things addressed in court cases. Um, so there is a, obviously a body of guidance um, in the transfer pricing guidance, uh, guidelines on many of these topics already, uh, but the courts have made clear that um, there's great scope still for debate um, about this. Let's move on to the next slide. These are the four issues which we have narrowed down to. They don't include some other important ones, um, but we only have 45 minutes. Uh, number one, what could be the transfer pricing consequences of not helping a loss-making related party? What could be the transfer pricing consequences of helping a related party in contravention of an existing agreement? What could be the transfer pricing risks basically of restructuring, slimming down or even closing down a group company as part of a rationalization program, very controversial area. Um, and what could be the transfer pricing risks of not documenting whatever you do or don't do now um, effectively. Let's move on again. Um, uh, we have 14 relevant judgments. I can tell you this is from reviewing a great many. Um, in these two slides, we've got the references. You'll see that they're from the last couple of years. Um, these ones are from, from Europe, Australia, and North America. And if we move to the next slide, we have some of the top there from Africa as well. So a good range of, 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 uh, of courts and indeed types of company in issue. Half the, half the client, the companies involved um, are anonymous. Some are called anonymous or company A. Some are called by what they do, such as zinc smelter, um, for convenience. Uh, now let's move on um, because um, Alejandra has done a nice summary uh, in two slides of the relevant economic uh, OECD guidance on these issues. Yes, thank you, Danny. So although the OECD guidance is considered a soft law from a legal perspective, it may be used by taxpayers as uh, legal arguments, actually, and technical support in the context of a tax audit or information letters and transfer pricing documentation vis-a-vis the tax authorities. So um, here uh, we have divided uh, the relevant OECD guidance um, in some headings uh, for, for the most uh, useful uh, support in, in the case of, of COVID. Um, 
for example, market conditions um, in relation to the level of supply and demand changes, government policies in relation to government subsidies and supports, for example, for amendments uh, and local documentation guaranteed by external parties or governments. Um, also, the point on business strategies uh, for taxpayers to be used as arguments in court as a justification for changes in anticipated profits, for example. Um, going on to the next slide, here we include uh, support for some uh, comparability issues that may arise uh, either in court or in the context, as I said, on a tax, for a taxing audit. Um, uh, for example, uh, losses justified in some cases by a change in business strategy, uh, as example to survival versus uh, investment uh, opportunities, options realistically available, and business restructuring. These two items are especially important uh, as they are included further in the new OECD Chapter 10 regarding financial transactions. And also, they will, will be further analyzed by tax authorities and courts in the post-COVID era. Um, so yes, this was uh, a recap on the OECD guidance that may be used uh, as support for, for court cases. And now Danny uh, will follow with the main challenges and questions extracted from the case law we analyzed. Yes, so I'm going to go through the challenges made by the tax administrations, and then um, Alejandra will go back, come back with her analysis of the successful defence arguments. Um, and as you can see, for um, our individual challenges, this is the first one, there are sub-challenges and sub-sub-challenges, and we try to group them. So uh, for a loss-making situation, the first challenge is that the losses imply that there must be comparability differences versus your benchmarks, uh, which you have not adjusted for. This came up, as you can see there, in two of our cases. Um, one example was uh, royalty rates, which were found to be based on uh, US comparables, um, and which were argued uh, not to be relevant simply because they produced a local loss each year. Um, and in that case, the tax administration argued, therefore, that their methods should be used uh, which, as in nearly all of these cases, is the TNMM. Um, another argument was that um, uh, goods pricing methods that produce a loss must be based on unreliable benchmarks. Therefore, it is more reliable to benchmark the other party. Uh, so not to use a different method, but uh, to forget benchmarking the company itself and benchmark another company in the group, regardless of the functional analysis. A second major challenge under this heading is that uh, high local marketing expenditure indicates that the IP you're paying royalties for can't in fact be that, that uh, valuable to you. Um, and therefore, uh, either the royalty rate should be uh, reduced or there should be a different transfer pricing method. So a, 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 an inferred link from the level of marketing expenditure to the level of royalty. Let's move on to the next slide. Still within, within the, the, the heading of losses, there are three of these slides. Um, another challenge is that the subsidiary must be performing specific second role, which it should have earned a separate payment, an Italian challenge. Um, in particular, in this case, the, the taxpayer was providing um, um, an unrecognized marketing service to the rest of the group. And another uh, main challenge was that the subsidiary is being kept going for the benefit of the group for some sort of nebulous reason. And therefore, the group somehow between itself should uh, at least stop the subsidiary making a loss. This came up in, in three of our 14 cases. 
Uh, one argument is that the group's key customers are global and need a global service provider for the convenience of the global customer, even if this implies some local sub subsidiaries which can't be profitable. And another argument was that if, if um, uh, the, the, the related counterparty is producing a high profit margin, it, it shouldn't be the one that's benchmarked if the related party, the entrepreneur, the, uh, so the, the, the alleged simpler party is making a loss. Uh, the risk taker must be uh, the local subsidiary making the loss. So an inference from losses that the tested party should be different. Let's move on to the next slide, final slide on this issue of losses. A challenge that it is not commercially rational. Oh, sorry, it's not. This is this is the start of the next um, of the next uh, topic. Um, yes, sorry. Yeah, let's go on. Um, Topic two, what could be the consequences of helping a related party in contravention of a transfer pricing agreement? Surprisingly, only came up in one of our 14 cases in the Orange uh, Telecoms uh, dispute. Uh, uh, the argument simply that it's not commercially rational to do so, um, either because um, it's not rational to change from being a cost plus uh, service provider with a, a steady risk-free income to uh, becoming an entrepreneur at the point where it involves sharing losses, not sharing profits. Um, and uh, if the action is, is, is irrational, then the taxpayer's profit should be benchmarked using the TNMM again. So let's move on again. Uh, topic three on uh, restructuring, many, many challenges here. The first one, that recharacterization uh, is possible. Uh, because of the commercial irrationality of the new arrangements. This came up in, uh, in six of the 14 cases, often to do with um, extractive industries uh, or manufacturing industries, um, physical product, where in particular um, a risk-bearing entity was introduced perhaps in Switzerland within the structure. And the sub-arguments include that there's no evidence that independent parties have made such a switch uh, the, no comparable third-party agreements can be found, uh, that the transactions were entered into mainly for a tax benefit, uh, no good transfer pricing justification for the old or new methods, uh, transfer pricing arrangements, so that the third one could be used for both periods, which is a drastic challenge uh, uh, with historical implications. Uh, no good reason to change the transfer pricing method just because old benchmarks are no longer available. One of these restructurings happened because um, the, 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 uh, the benchmarks, two or three companies that used to be useful references, ceased to be re uh, relevant anymore. And so the company had to change the transfer pricing benchmarking method, and that wasn't accepted by the tax administration. And then differences between internal and external sales prices have not been explained adequately which is quite a common situation, isn't it? We, we allow our related parties to drift apart from what we're doing with third parties. And the new arrangement is a sham, the most drastic challenge of all, of course, um, not a transfer pricing one as such, because of lack of economic substance um, and lack of business purpose, a very bad situation to get into. Let's move on to the next question, next slide. Uh, still on the same topic. Um, there is a challenge to the size of the contract termination payment. This is where an existing agreement has been terminated early, came up in several of the cases. Um, one challenge that early 
IP development work by the tested party had created partial IP ownership, even if um, a broader transfer pricing arrangement at the time, in this case a loose profit split arrangement, should have covered uh, the, the IP uh, work, and arguably it did. Uh, lost profit should be calculated on the basis of the IP lifetime, not the normal uh, two-year compensation clause in license agreements, which is interesting. The lost profit should be calculated on the basis of the taxpayer's whole business profit. So here we go, infinite lifetime and whole business profit. This is very resonant, isn't, isn't it, of those um, landmark US cases. Um, the lost profit should be calculated on a group contribution profit split basis, um, as opposed to some sort of uh, cost plus or TNNM service base. Uh, that's quite ambitious. Uh, the other group companies should have compensated the closed subsidiary because they were able to pick up some of its sales um, in some, some uh, indirect fashion. Quite ambitious. Let's move on to the next slide. Question four, no, a bit more of question three. Um, a challenge um, to the choice of the new transfer pricing method after the restructuring, which came up in one of the cases. Um, here we are, financing decisions were still being made um, partly by the parent company, so the new group finance company should only earn a risk-free reward uh, for providing the finance and a cost plus fee for helping the parent to manage the group's finance. Um, and the conversion from an entrepreneur to a low-risk service provider was not complete, and so there should be a profit split between the, the, um, the old and, and, and new uh, companies or the companies uh, which uh, before and after had the entrepreneur role, which is interesting. And again, let's move on to the next slide, please. Our final question uh, was covered by two, two of our cases this year, um, that um, there was a challenge that the tax administration's transfer pricing research analysis uh, must be accepted uh, simply because of the inadequacy of, of, the trans, uh, of the taxpayer's original analysis. Um, uh, so, for example, the tax administration's uh, net margin benchmarking of the taxpayer is justified if there is no transfer pricing document to support the taxpayer's choice of tested party and method. Um, if the documentation is inadequate, the tax administration is entitled to assume that there is a group reason for keeping the company open. So a link between lack of documentation and the, the, the argument that uh, there must be some um, ulterior group motive to all of this. And if the taxpayer's benchmarks for the other party are not robust, the taxpayer can be benchmarked itself, despite the functionalities making it clear that you shouldn't benchmark the taxpayer. So um, with that, that, let's move on to the next slide when we get on to the successful taxpayer their defences against these challenges. Yes, thank you, Danny. So, in relation to the first question analyzed after the challenges, we have identified, as Danny said, several arguments that were accepted in court. So, the first bullet point, the first three bullet points, refers to the burden of proof. Um, in this case, we have seen that it is, in fact, for the tax administration. Um, to show that the correct price should be for what, what the correct price should be for the actual transaction. 
Um, in this case, for example, if they would consider that a group entity would need to support a loss making subsidiary and not merely go to the to the market to obtain the same service. Also, to show why another transfer pricing method would be more reliable than the one applied uh, on the current transaction, and the existence the existence of any alleged second transaction. Again, in the sense that uh, imagine a group entity was supposed to go to the market finding the same service provided by a lot making entity. So another argument um, which has always, uh, in, in, in most of the cases, helped taxpayers um, was uh, related to a robust transaction analysis. So actually to prove that the lower profits when transacting with related parties can be explained by a comparability difference. Um, in relation to losses, uh, they can also be justified in the sense of an unsuccessful business strategy of the taxpayer. So um, in this case, for example, if the actual costs in court were exceeding the budgeted costs, which can be the case for a normal entrepreneur activity in, in the third party, in, in between third parties uh, in the market. So um, another potential argument uh, that uh, helps taxpayers in this case is um, the, the concept of um, uncontrollable external factors, um, which is of course relevant for the, for the actual COVID crisis situation. And I think in this case we may, we may have a question Sorry, yes. Can I uh, just uh, interrupt there around the uh, sorry, the questions that have come in? Uh, there's a couple around this uh, uncontrollable external factors, and, and basically, won't everyone just rely on that given the current pandemic? I'd like to hear your thoughts on that. Of course, it is an issue for everybody, isn't it? Uh, sorry. Let me let me have a have a, a quick go at that. Um, it is an issue for everybody, and it, obviously it does. It is likely to cause immediate economic uh, hardship uh, for for most uh, companies. The question is, what do you then do about it? Um, with your third party partners, are you agreeing to share that hardship? Um, are third parties between themselves agreeing to share that hardship? Is it in your longer term interest to share that hardship, you're given your options realistically available? So it's not enough just to point to the blog. It's, it's, it's to tease out the questions that arise from it, looking back at what we said about the cases. Yeah, and then going on to the next slide. Um, on, on our second question related to what happens when uh, when another a related party is helping uh, its group entity in contravention of uh, a transfer pricing agreement that they already had in place. So in this case, we have identified um, the use of the profit split actually being accepted um, by the court after a restructuring due to the integrated business of the parties. So uh, in this case, if, if parties help each other in a CP, in a CP arrangement, the profit split may be the appropriate method um, to justify this integration, actually. Uh, even if before we were, they were applying a cost plus. Uh, this is what happens in one of our cases. And yeah, basically uh, it was justified by the fact of, again, the business rationality and actual conduct of the parties, which is 
prevailing over uh, the trust of pricing agreement they had previously. So yes, the, the, the functions of each party may be intertwined and difficult to isolate, um, even if your transfer pricing policy states otherwise. Um, this was quite a, a useful argument. And then going on to the, the third question that we had, um, that we extracted from, from our conclusions after reviewing the court cases, we saw um, when, when you, in, the, in the case of uh, business restructuring, when you have a slimming down or closing a, a group company, um, well, there are several arguments uh, which may be used. Um, also, this slide may be used as a template uh, in case we have um, any of this uh, restructuring happening in a group. Um, the first argument would be related to what happens if uh, a parent company continues to perform some important functions um, while an, another new company um, is, is uh, going on and taking on the activity. So this was not necessarily enough for the court to recharacterize the new arrangement. Um, even though the employees remained at the level of the old parent company, so uh, it may be seen as a, as a substance uh, being taken over by a new company because, uh, of course, uh, if the employees were remaining, uh, the parent company would have more uh, substance. But this was not necessarily enough to recharacterize this new arrangement. So um, then uh, one of the main uh, conclusions of this case was basically that the new company was considered as an entrepreneur and the court accepted this old company to still get uh, a service fee. Um, even though they were performing the important functions and, and, and the employees remained at this uh, old uh, parent company level. Um, the second argument, um, in which may work, is that actually, again, is the, the tax administration would be the one to show the, the tax avoidance purpose for, for, for a business restructuring which, again, can be counter-argumented uh, with, with a, a robust functional analysis and um, in the sense of the business restructuring and the options realistically available of the parties. And then, well, uh, in relation to, to transfer pricing rules, we have uh, the next argument. Um, in the, here, I think, Danny, you wanted to add an example on, on this one. Yes, um, the acceptance of the recharacterization argument differs according to different uh, countries' courts' interpretation of, of, the, of the intention of the OECD guidance and, and how they've been written in, into the local statute. Um, so it, it's quite often successful to argue that um, it's not enough to show that there isn't very good data to base the pricing on, for example, um, or to mumble about the rationale, you know, the, the, um, the, the, the reason why this has all happened. Um, you actually have to, have to show, uh, as a tax administration, that the arrangements wouldn't have been entered into. Um, not that they don't seem like a very good idea to you, but they actually wouldn't definitely have been entered into. And so we even get to the point, don't we, in some courts, of uh, taxpayers winning because the tax administration hasn't been able to show um, a, a, an, an agreement um, supporting their side of, of the argument, for example. Uh, so it's it's a wider it's a wider issue 
and a point uh, rather about local uh, perspectives. And then going down on the next argument, um, this is uh, actually in relation to IT, which is the fourth uh, argument that we would, the, sorry, the fifth argument that we would uh, have identified, which is um, basically for IT, uh, and in general for transfer pricing, we have to bear in mind that judges tend to take a, a more legal approach on the importance of IT ownership. So not so concentrated on, on dempy functions, on, on who is actually performing uh, these functions, um, since they are, of course, not transfer pricing experts. So we examined a case, basically, where uh, actually the company owning the IT, although it did not have any employees, it managed to get an important regulatory approval. So actually, the legal ownership was considered as a valuable asset for, for in front of the court. So, therefore, evidencing its profit-generating profit capability. So, this argument was accepted by the court, and rather than focusing only on the employees of each company, they looked at the actual legal value um, added in the transaction. So, this is something to, to be considered also um, in the sense of IT. And uh, then, for we also see, um, as one of the other arguments, um, the, the degree there is a high de when there is a high degree of integration of companies, uh, the use of profit splits is again being accepted uh, by courts, even if it results results in a in, in a loss split. So um, again, in one of our cases, they switch from an alternative method. So they were applying a cost plus method uh, to a profit split, but was accepted by the courts. Um, again, as a justification for remunerating the change in business strategy of the group um, when, when closing down uh, a company. And then in relation to, the, to one of the last uh, arguments that we saw was that actually um, there is a, well, how, how can we, uh, how is the compensation seen um, in, in the context of business restructuring courts? And I think Danny also wanted to add a comment here. Uh, in the yes. Sense uh, of, um, yes. Again, this goes back to the, the 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 burden of proof being more often than we would expect on the tax administration. Uh, it's, it's remarkable how many assertions are made by tax administrations in their chain of logic. And what we see is that um, you know one of those it is one of those steps in a, in a long, possibly convincing sounding chain of logic will be picked on uh, by the court, and uh, if, it, if it doesn't work, if it's just found to be assertion and no expert or no document will confirm it, then the whole argument falls. This is one example. And, and the last point there about, um, well, something of value must have, must have transferred because uh, your profit is now being earned by your related parties. Um, what was it? Uh, what was it that transferred? What, what was the legal right that could have been sold to a third party? And the tax administration couldn't identify it. So there's good stringent legalistic testing of, of tax administration's assertions in these cases. Yes, exactly. And then um, going on the fourth question that uh, we we were um, we were analysing in this case. What happens actually when uh, a group, uh, multinational entities are taking steps, so in, during the COVID crisis, taking decision steps, 
uh, without recording uh, the justification in writing from a, from a legal perspective. So, of course, uh, there is a general recommendation in the majority of European countries, as well including Luxembourg and Spain, for example, to always try to document uh, the social pricing documentation ex ante, so, um, so, so before any, any request from a tax authority or any appeal in court. So, however, uh, we have seen that uh, in some countries, um, that like Denmark, for example, um, the social pricing documentation was actually uh, accepted when prepared in the context of a tax audit. So, um, and they were actually re reconsidering the, the, the social pricing documentation for a recharacterization. Um, nonetheless, in Luxembourg, uh, we have seen recent cases where um, they show that appropriate social pricing documentation uh, readily available in case of any challenge was always a better option, uh, showing good faith uh, in front of the tax authorities and in case, of course, of going to court in front of the judge. So although we have seen that uh, transfer pricing documentation uh, prepared ex post has been uh, accepted, um, we always uh, like to, to go to the, to the main recommendation, which is, of course, to, to have everything prepared and documented even with uh, these con constant changes in pricing and, and business strategies during COVID. Thanks, Alessandra. Uh, just to, to put in for a second there, we've got a uh, couple of questions coming in. Um, one of them, I guess, is, uh, is quite topical in terms of uh, this particular client has subsidiaries that are benefiting currently from government financial support. And, and the question is, if they share this income with the other subsidiaries, will they be exposed to the same tax administration challenges? And if so, should they follow your recommendations in reverse? Uh, I'll have a go at answering that. Um, there isn't a direct inverse set of arguments um, when you start to test the ideas. Uh, and I think this is why um, an OECD spokesman said last week that the main the main question that business has says it wants answered by the new coronavirus transfer pricing guidance, which I think is probably coming out around January, is this one. What to do about government support whether and how to spread that around the group. Um, and unfortunately, the, the existing guidance and indeed our cases don't directly address that issue. Um, uh, so we've got to wait for that guidance, I think. Okay, thanks, Danny. Just, just one final one, um, and this is really a general question around do you foresee any uh, additional tax administration challenges uh, that you haven't covered so far? Um, there is, so, yes, please go ahead, uh, Alejandra. So basically, when our cases haven't addressed the important issue of benchmarking, so um, before the crisis and after the crisis, of course, uh, and how to adjust them. This is a more technical issue, um, and how to, to set other methods. Um, also, the, the fact on whether uh, advanced pricing agreements should cease to apply, maybe, uh, due to, to the constant um, uh, changes during, during lockdown and also uh, for the following years after, after the crisis. So, of course, these are some issues that, uh, and challenges we will face in the future and that we foresee that uh, would be considered. Um, 
Well, I just, I mean, but our theme of, of referring to cases, we could refer to the to the, to the Eaton Corporation uh, case about uh, the uh, tax administration deciding that an APA should no longer apply, which dragged on through various courts, most recently heard in November last year in the U.S. Tax Court. A good a good reference for this whole issue. That sounds, Danny. Um, I know we only have 10 minutes left, but for people listening in on the webinar, please do keep the questions coming in, and then we will answer as many as we can. If not, we'll, we'll try and cover them uh, after this, but uh, thank you for that. I'll pass uh, back over to, to Danny. Okay, just briefly in two slides, um, we have, have drawn implications for your con contemporaneous transfer pricing documentation and group them under headings. You'll have all these slides after the event. Um, as we saw, uh, only one argument worked uh, for the taxpayer in respect of its documentation in all of those cases. Uh, there's far more that they could have done that, sh that may well have worked. It's an area which hasn't really been explored by taxpayers, I think. So I think it's a good idea to take note of these suggestions, even if some of them seem, may seem basic. I'm not going to read them all out, but benchmarking function analysis documentation suggestions for your contemporaneous documentation. On the next slide, to make sure we finish on time, uh, comparability, losses, external events, and IP, a wide range of recommendations which we hope will be useful. Um, I want to give Alejandro time to talk about the special Luxembourg implications of all of this now, please. Thank you, Danny. So yes, as you know, uh, financing is the main for company activity in Luxembourg. Um, and as you may see, have seen already during lockdown and for the year 2020 due to the COVID situation, um, we have seen an impact, of course, on the pricing of financial transactions. And we have questions still to be answered on how tax authorities and courts will analyze the impact on these transactions. It is important here uh, as a summary to know that uh, we see more, more scrutiny, we will see more scrutiny on debt capacity ratio uh, for new loans. Um, and therefore, from a legal point of view, uh, a reassessment, uh, which has maybe happened already, of loan terms and conditions. Um, so, especially I wanted to make a point here on, on, on a special consideration on how uh, in loan agreements, uh, collateral repayment options and interest reassessment options uh, are to be drafted now, um, and how will they be bulletproof uh, for future audits uh, for the year 2020. Also, uh, linked to what was mentioned during the presentation in relation to government support um, and implicit support from, from the group, um, in this case, this will have a, a high importance uh, to obtain more favorable uh, financing terms for, for group entities. Um, and the justification and arguments uh, to be brought up uh, during COVID will be important too, uh, in relation, for example, to matters such as the credit rating deterioration of the borrower um, and breaking of financial covenant ratios, which may, uh, of course, happen during, during uh, the COVID crisis. Um, and then going on for to, to, to the point on cash pools again, uh, there will here we we will see the impact on how uh, the how the decision taking uh, has been 
has, has happened uh, in, in cash flow structures? Are the local managers assessing the options realistically available, or uh, is, the, is the cash flow leader actually deciding on, 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 on the cash uh, shortage uh, of the group? Um, this is all something that will have an implication um, on repricing, and of course, later on, we'll need some legal support. Um, if you, we go on to, to the next slide here, we wanted to, to summarize a bit more the implications for, for also typical Luxembourg activity, activities such as investment management and private equity deals. So uh, we can also apply the same arguments that we were we exposed before for for, for the fund industry. Uh, for example, uh, the impact uh, on reduced assets under management. How how to argue this um, in case of, of a challenge. Um, also, the reassessment on, on a fund value chain. This, uh, although maybe it's not a business restructuring, but it is a change on business strategy. Um, uh, and, and it will also be based on decision taking, actually, and, and the conduct of the parties. And private equity transactions. Here, um, it is a special, uh, a special issue that uh, we will encounter and we have been encountering now. Uh, is, and the fact is how uh, to decide the appropriate timing to benchmark a private equity deal since uh, due, due, to, due to COVID, we have seen uh, changes in rates during lockdown, even, even between the months of uh, April, May, and June, uh, and now. So um, again, here, uh, the focus on debt-to-equity ratio, increase of debt leverage. Um, also here, important to consider the, the options for funding at the level of investors. And, uh, and of course, the need uh, for transfer pricing uh, documentation and leverage for, to justify this. Uh, a point that is specifically important is uh, how to justify in front of the tax administration and the courts um, how, how the business strategy evolved for, for private equity deals, for example, uh, if it was more to seek investment opportunities or if it was uh, to, to, to grant uh, a cash to, to, other, to other entities in, in, in the deal. Uh, so, for example, a survival business strategy uh, with, in contrast with, with, an, with a, an aggressive business strategy of investment. Um, so yeah, this, this provides uh, some of some, to some degree a summary of of what will with the main implications for Luxembourg activities. Great, thank you, uh, Alessandra and, and Danny. Uh, we've got uh, the last last three three minutes now. So we, we've had a number of questions coming in. So I'm, I'm just going to read these out in, in the order in which they they've been received. Um, one of them is uh, is around the uh, tax jurisdictions, and that is, are some of your recommendations less likely to work in certain tax jurisdictions? Can I have a go at that one? Um, the, we showed that our 14 cases um, come from around the world, so um, in many countries and, and industries and situations, so we hope that there is um, uh, relevance quite quite widely, but also what we do find, uh, particularly in transfer pricing, is one um, well-argued uh, case, perhaps hearing good expert evidence, um, can have highly persuasive power 
in other jurisdictions um, uh, who are where the, where the court may be, uh, you know, very much in need of help to make a decision in a complex gray area. So I think it's worth making reference to uh, to all of the cases that we've referred to, wherever they appear to be relevant to another taxpayer's situation. Thanks, Danny. I guess linked to that, um, we have a question here. In, in your judgment, uh, were there cases where a lack of full and proper documentation worked against the companies, i.e., could the result or the outcome of the challenge have been different? Um, again, I'm happy to have a, a go at that one. Um, yes, basically. Um, <laughs> We, given given, given uh, the, the fact that we only found one successful argument for a taxpayer in that, in that situation versus uh, about um, 12 challenges uh, by the tax administrations. Um, so, uh, yes, uh, definitely. And I hope that we've, we've pointed to what that documentation should contain. Thanks, Danny. The, 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 the last one in, in the interest of time. Um, if we ask our limited risk subsidiary to accept a lower profit margin during the crisis, does this mean that it was never really limited risk and should therefore have been earning a higher profit margin in the previous and future years? I'll answer that one very quickly. It could do, couldn't it? It's a very scary challenge uh, for all of us. Um, uh, our defense would be, well, um, it was in the long-term interests of the uh, company to do that, or third parties are doing it. We, but we must be aware of that risk. Thank you. Thanks, Danny. Um, we, we've now, unfortunately, come to the end of the, uh, of the session, but I'd really like to thank both uh, yourself, Danny, and uh, Alessandra for uh, giving us your, your time and your, and your input on this. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning of the webinar, we will be making a replay uh, available shortly on our website at arendt.com, and all of the attendees will also receive an email copy of the slides. I know there was quite a bit of information in there, but we will send these out. So on behalf of Danny, Alessandra, and all of us here at Arendt, thank you again, and enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this webinar. For more information on tax and transfer pricing, we invite you to visit our website www.arent.com where you can find the latest development in tax in Luxembourg.